We are a resource for learners, including every member of the Livestrong Cancer Institute's on-track educational pipeline from middle school to residency. We are a growing collection of interviews, talks, and experiences that uncover the myths and the uncertainties of cancer and careers in cancer in order to empower and inspire generations of thinkers and leaders. This is Cancer Uncovered, an education and empowerment podcast by the Livestrong Cancer Institutes. Welcome back to Cancer Uncovered. I am Kristen Nguyen with the Livestrong Cancer Institutes at Dell Medical School here at the University of Texas at Austin. In this two-part episode, we're going to hear from five cancer researchers here at UT Austin that were awarded funding for their research from the American Cancer Society Institutional Research Grant, or as we call it, the ACSIRG at UT Austin. What that means is, UT Austin applied for the opportunity to receive money from the American Cancer Society. The American Cancer Society is a longstanding organization that raises money for cancer research and directly helps cancer patients and families with their needs. UT Austin was awarded the money and it is now UT Austin's job to give that money to deserving cancer researchers new in their career here at UT. The hope is that this money will help them really jumpstart their research and begin strongly so they can grow and continue their work. There's a ton of really cool new research and science packed into these episodes. If you're able to while you're listening to this episode, make yourself notes about concepts you're not sure of and go back and do your own research on them later. Even if you don't understand every single part of their work, don't sweat that. These are things that you will learn in time. It's still really intriguing to hear about their processes. What I want you to really listen for and think about as you listen are the following less obviously science-y things about this cool science. One, consider the importance of teamwork and partnership. There isn't a single researcher that doesn't mention the team of people it takes to make all of this research happen. Two, Note how all of these different types of research in cancer are getting done. Sometimes you'll hear about the use of proteins and chemicals. Sometimes you'll hear about the use of surveys given to patients or one-on-one interviews with patients or digging in and deeply reviewing the data that has been previously collected about a certain type of medicine and the effects of that on patients. Number three, Think through the skills all of these researchers require to get all of this accomplished. Yes, they need to understand the science, but these researchers also have to be able to write. They had to write their application and write about their research to apply for this money. In this episode, they had to present, so they're presenting their research to a room full of other scientists. They have to get creative and come up with other ways to get things done when they run into roadblocks. You'll hear on this episode, it's everything from supply chain issues to staffing shortages to language barriers. While you might be thinking, this is totally overwhelming, you're not wrong. But we are hoping that you see that there is a place for you in all of this, that you don't have to do it alone, and that it takes all kinds of people to get this work done. What is also an added cool bonus is that this year, 
all recipients of the ACS IRG are women. Women are still underrepresented in cancer research, so getting the chance to help these five women build their research is particularly important. In part one of this episode, you'll hear from Dr. Cassandra Kalman, Dr. Tara Kaufman, and Dr. Lelia Noel. In the second part of this episode, you'll hear from Dr. Chanyun Park and Dr. Jenny Spencer, and then hear their group discussion at the very end. Okay, I'm going to have Dr. Barbara Jones, the co-principal investigator or one of the lead scientists on the ACSIRG, take it from here. My name is Barbara Jones. I am a professor uh, at the Steve Hicks School of Social Work and at Dell Medical School uh, and Associate Director of Social Sciences at the Livestrong Cancer Institutes. I'm really excited to welcome you all here to this cancer research seminar series. We're particularly excited today because we have all of the recipients of the American Cancer Society Institutional Research Grant awardees to talk about their research. We have given them a challenge probably even bigger than uh, writing the grant, which is to present where they are in eight minutes. So it's going to be great. And I'm not going to take up too much more time, but I do want to say that For us to receive the American Cancer Society IRG was quite a win, particularly at this stage in our development. I'm sorry that Bill Matsui, uh, you know, we're both PIs on the grant. He's not with us today. I'm the other PI, but it really was quite an accomplishment for us to get this funding. And it means a lot to junior investigators to be able to fund their research so that they can go on and continue studying all of the wonderful things that they're studying. And we're really excited to hear. We've got a wide range of participants from a number of different schools. I really am going to be so brief that I'm going to introduce them by name and department and let them take it away. We're going to kick it off with Dr. Cassandra Kalman, who is joining us. She is an assistant professor of chemistry. So take it away. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you for the introduction. Uh, My name is Cassandra and I am an assistant professor here in the chemistry department at UT. I've been here a little bit over a year now, and today I'm really excited to tell you about our progress on a project I like to call revising the role of heparinase in cancer therapy. Before I get started, I really just want to take a second and acknowledge my group. So as I said, I just started about a year ago and I've been really fortunate to have a lot of really talented graduate students, postdocs and undergrads work with me already so far. Um, And we've been doing some really cool science. I especially want to take a second to point out uh, Chandler Wells, who is one of the graduate students here on the screen, um, because the project that I'm going to tell you about now really has been his main focus since um, even before we got the grant. And so he's really put a lot of effort and work into it. Also, I want to just acknowledge Cole and Carson because they've been helping out as well. As I get started, I want to just take one quick second just so that everybody, um, because I know we all come from different backgrounds, to just mention that when you think about a tumor, that it's more than just a collection of cancer cells. So a tumor, you have cancer cells, but then you also have a lot of different other types of cells, proteins, and different aspects that make a tumor a tumor. And so my research group is really has a main focus on developing new tools and strategies for both detecting, but more importantly, treating cancer. But of course, today I am focusing on our project on revising the role of heparinase in cancer therapy. Heparinase is a protein and it's a glycosidase that is overexpressed in the tumor microenvironment of essentially all cancers. And heparinase's function um, in normal physiology is to degrade and break down oligosaccharides of this oligosaccharide called heparin sulfate. And so under normal physiology, heparin, heparinase expression is really tightly controlled because it actually is really important in embryonic development. 
But what happens is as tumors start to reach a certain size, they start expressing and producing all sorts of types of proteins and degrading and degrading enzymes, one of it being heparinase. In the context of cancer, what this does is it starts cleaving these oligosaccharides and degrading the basement membrane and help contributing to the tumor being able to metastasize and move to distant sites. And so heparinase has actually been a validated and identified drug target since about the mid-1990s. Multiple small molecule heparinase inhibitors have been entered and are undergoing clinical trials, but actually none of these materials have actually attained FDA approval as of yet. And so the goal behind these or heparinase inhibitors is these oligosaccharides are designed so that they bind to the protein and inhibit its function. So essentially shut it down so that it can't continue to go on and break up and chop up the oligosaccharides and contribute it to metastasis. As I said, none of these have attained FDA approval, potentially due to the fact that, of course, heparinase has a tumorogenic role, as I've talked about. But just like many things in cancer, there's this duality where heparinase also has anti-tumor effects as well. And so in my group, in this project that I'm talking about today, we had this idea where instead of using heparinase as a therapeutic target and trying to develop materials and inhibitors of the protein to instead utilize and take advantage of the fact that heparinase is this endogenous enzyme. And so the goal of this project is to, instead of trying to inhibit the action of, of heparinase to instead capitalize on what it already does as a way of targeting drugs to tumors. And so the way that we're going about this is through the development of polymeric nanoparticles that are comprised of these dye block copolymer systems, where you have a hydrophilic block, which I've shown in blue, which contains heparinase responsive heparin sulfate oligosaccharide mimics, and then the hydrophobic block, which I've shown here in purple, Ultimately, the goal is to have this be a chemotherapeutic, but for now, we're just working with an inner hydrophobic moiety as a model. And so these um, polymers, we're designing them so that they form these nanoparticles where you have your drug in the core and then this oligosaccharide on the shell. And so the idea behind it is that when you expose these nanoparticles to heparinase, it starts recognizing the oligosaccharides on its surface, cleaving them and inducing a shape change. And so the way that this, this process is supposed to work in the tumor is that following intravenous injection, once our nanomaterials enter the tumor microenvironment, the heparinase recognizes its oligosaccharide substrate and starts cleaving it, which induces this change in size and shape, and ultimately allows us to build up this depot of drugs and therapeutics specifically within the tumor itself. And so this is the target that we've been working towards since day one. But as I mentioned, we are a new group. I just started a year ago. and thanks to the pandemic and then all of the supply chain issues and delays. Um, we're still waiting on our solid phase oligosaccharide synthesizer to facilitate the synthesis of this hexasaccharide here. And so in the interim, we've been working on a scheme to actually synthesize this ourselves of course, uh, even if you're not a chemist, I think what you can appreciate is that there's a lot of steps here. And so we've been able to synthesize this target so far, but obviously this has been a tour de force and a lot of effort has been going into it. And so in parallel, what we've been working on is a different approach just so that we can at least prove out our proof of concept. And so here, what we've also been working on in parallel is developing a polymer system that still has that heparin sulfate hexasaccharide along its backbone. Um, but instead, we're using a pre-synthesized purchase um, hexasaccharide that we're, we're adding on to a preformed polymer backbone. 
we have been able to actually successfully synthesize this polymer so far. And what's really exciting is that when we actually take a look at it and, and test its activity with heparinase, we actually see that it is responding to heparinase in the manner in which we designed it to. And so this is preliminary data that we actually just got that's super exciting. And so what it shows is that we have our heparin sulfate mimicking polymer the important thing to note is that before you expose the po polymer to heparinase, this is what it looks like. There's not really much going on. However, after you incubate this polymer with heparinase for about for 24 hours, we see the appearance of these two peaks here, which we believe is the tetrasaccharide fragment and a disaccharide fragment, indicating that this enzyme is actually acting on the substrate as a polymer. And so as a sanity check, we also... Um, can compare the cleavage of the polymer to the cleavage of just the hexasaccharide in solution. And we see the same peaks, suggesting that this is indeed working. To just wrap up and conclude, um, so what we've done so far is we've been able to successfully synthesize heparin sulfate containing polymers that are degradable by heparinase. And as far as we can tell, and as far as we are aware, this is actually the very first demonstration of heparinase having activity on polymeric heparin sulfate mimics. And of course, in the future, we're going to continue to work on our synthesis of our diploc copolymers and then evaluate the, um, the function of this material, both in vitro and in vivo. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Dr. Kalman, for keeping to time. You set the bar for the challenge. <laughs> All right. And I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Tara Kaufman, who is an assistant professor of oncology at Dell Medical School. Thank you, Barbara. I appreciate it. Um, my name is Tara Kaufman. I'm an assistant professor of medical oncology um, in the Department of Oncology. I'm a breast medical oncologist and also a palliative medicine physician. And today I'm going to tell you about my research program, which focuses on using patient-reported outcomes or PROs to monitor patients for early palliative care referral um, in outpatients with advanced cancers. The health problem that my research program seeks to address is to improve early palliative care referral for patients with advanced cancer. And what we really know over the last 10 years or so um, is there's now a wealth of evidence that early palliative care improves patient and health outcomes for patients when they receive it early in their cancer treatment after metastatic diagnosis, yet patients don't receive timely and appropriate referrals, either in academic and community settings. And so there's a gap between evidence and practice, and my research really seeks to close this gap. And there's now a large body of evidence that's also looked at why it's been so difficult to implement early palliative care, even though we know that this is a great evidence-based practice. And some of the reasons are that models of palliative care integration that have been studied have been really difficult to um, implement and scale in uh, standard oncology settings, particularly in places where there's limited workforce supply, so settings with constrained access to services. There's also been a lot of work to understand barriers to integration. And what we now know is that there are barriers on multiple levels in the health ecosystem on the patient provider and system level, yet there aren't that many supportive care interventions that have been tested with multi-level approaches or strategies to integrate palliative care. So there's really a need to still figure out how to best implement palliative care. I would argue it's really an implementation problem at this point. And we really need new approaches also to better understand how to implement it. And I've come to believe that it really will take a multi-level type intervention strategy to do this. And so my research question that I'm focusing on currently is, can we use PRO monitoring or patient-reported outcomes to increase the implementation of early palliative care referral for patients with advanced cancer? PROs or patient reported outcomes are patient surveys, essentially. It's any report that comes from a patient without interpretation by anyone else. 
And what we now know from some seminal work that's been conducted over the last few years <clears throat> is that patients who receive patient-reported outcomes monitoring for physical symptoms have better outcomes, um, both in quality of life, reduced care utilization, and even in overall survival. And so this is also an evidence-based practice that's been shown to improve patient outcomes. It's really growing rapidly in oncology and has already moved into the implementation space also. Now, this is just used to monitor patients for physical symptoms. And my question is whether we can also use patient-reported outcomes to monitor patients for other multidimensional palliative care needs in order to more efficiently screen and assess patients in a standardized fashion to monitor them for unmet palliative care needs during their cancer treatment, and then also trigger referrals to palliative care as needs developed. So this is a conceptual model that I've developed with my mentors as we've really thought through the issue of how would you do peer-directed palliative care referral. And what this illustrates is that we propose monitoring patients using patient-reported outcomes across a range of palliative care domains. These are domains that we've identified that are uh, potentially appropriate for PRO monitoring. And these are domains that are important to patients, physicians, and have been shown to be impacted by early palliative care interventions. And you can see that physical symptoms are part of it, but there's really a range of domains that palliative care addresses. We've also worked on developing a structured multi-level intervention, which I won't get into in this talk. This is a work for a future grant in which we proposed using um, standardized PRO monitoring to screen patients in a standardized way during their treatment, and then provide referral decision support to palliative care through predefined triggers. And the hypothesis is that this will increase timely and equitable refer referral um, through a few different mechanisms to better detect unmet um, palliative care needs. What we propose is that using PRO monitoring to screen patients for palliative care needs is really a more efficient way of screening patients rather than repeated provider intensive assessments, that we will better detect unmet um, needs through direct patient report, and that there's also the potential that such a structured intervention could reduce referral bias if used in patient populations where maybe patients are less likely to report their needs or that, or that physicians don't appropriately screen patients um, for palliative care needs. So the first set of work that we set out to do when I came here um, about two years ago and really moving into this grant is to identify the PRO item set that we would use to screen patients for palliative care needs. So what we did was really use a very methodologic and rigorous approach to identify eight different domains that early palliative care addresses, and then identify validated PRO measures and then PRO items that could be used to screen patients for unmet palliative care needs. And the way that we developed this approach was really to focus on items that were feasible for PRO monitoring, um, that are actionable by palliative care interventions um, that were appropriate for PRO monitoring, and also items that are available in Spanish translations. And so we proposed doing this also in our clinic here, which serves a largely Hispanic-speaking patient population. So the idea is that you screen patients um, across these different multidimensional PRO domains we propose here screening patients with 13 PRO items weekly for symptoms that rapidly change, such as physical and psychological symptoms, and then screening patients monthly with an additional 11 PRO items that screen patients across a range of other domains. With the idea here that you, um, as you monitor patients on treatment, that you may identify palliative care needs. So the focus of the ACS IRG proposal is then to pilot test this PRO item set that we developed. And the focus of the proposal is to conduct a single-arm pilot study of PRO monitoring of multidimensional palliative care domains, primarily to determine feasibility, acceptability, and appropriateness. And so what we've done, we opened our pilot study in, on May 15th this year, as we're recruiting patients in the Livestrong Cancer Institute Clinic, 30 patients, 
And we're piloting the Piro item set to assess these multidimensional palliative care needs. We're recruiting outpatients with advanced and curable solid cancers who are on active treatment who are earlier in their um, diagnosis of a prognosis of at least six months. And we're following patients longitudinally for 12 weeks. This is our study schema where we screen patients, approach and enroll them. We collect baseline sociodemographic, um, clinical and study measures, including the FACG at baseline, which is a quality of life measure. Patients then go on PRO monitoring, which includes the weekly symptom PROs, which are those 13 items I showed you, and then a monthly palliative PRO assessment, which is an additional 11 items. We then collect the FACG at week 12, administer end-of-study surveys to assess appropriateness and acceptability, and then in a subset of patients, we will conduct study and interviews to further understand the how um, the pilot study went, as well as do some provider interviews. These are our study outcomes and evaluation metrics, where you can see that this is truly a pilot study where our main goals are to assess feasibility, um, which we define as enrollment rates, retention rates, and adherence to PRO monitoring, as well as acceptability and appropriateness. We partnered with CareVive, which is our research technology partner to do this work. They provide the patient-reported outcomes mobile platform called Prompt, in which patients can receive the symptom surveys on any device, a phone, tablet, or computer. They report the symptoms weekly. And the clinical team then receives alerts for severe symptoms and responds per standard of care procedures. We review the palliative care assessment that's done monthly with the interdisciplinary team as well as send it to the oncology provider. I don't have results yet. We're, we're still just a few months in, but this is a consort diagram which shows our progress. So we screened since in the last five months, about 220 patients. The majority of patients were ineligible because they had an early stage diagnosis, around 45% of patients. We identified 30 eligible patients so far, about 13% of patients that we screened. So it takes a lot of screening in order to identify eligible patients. Uh, the majority of patients who we've approached have consented. So future directions for this work is that we plan to expand this pilot study to the Seton Oncology Clinic here, which serves a medically vulnerable patient population who's largely under uninsured um, and Spanish speaking only. So in order to do this work in that clinic, we're building the Pure item set on the CareVive platform in Spanish translation. Um, we will then conduct cognitive interviews, which is a way of pre-testing the Pure items in a target population. Um, and we'll recruit Spanish speaking patients to do that and do that uh, in a bilingual fashion to understand if the PRO items need to be uh, modified at all, substituted or changed. And then um, I'm also writing some five-year grants and submitting them with the goal of conducting a large randomized control trial, which would also be a pilot study um, to compare a multi-level PRO-directed referral intervention to usual care using this PRO monitoring strategy. I'd like to thank everyone who's been involved in this work. It's really been a major team effort, especially like to highlight here the medical students and residents who've jumped in and helped with this work, John Saxton, Katie Goodfellow, and Neha Reddy, as well as our clinical oncology team, who's really been amazing in supporting this work and, and the research team and research coordinators. So thank you for your time and attention. And I welcome collaboration involvement. So please reach out with any questions or again involved. Thank you very much, Dr. Kaufman. We are now going to turn to Dr. Lelia Noel, who's an assistant professor in the Steve Hicks School of Social Work. Thank you for having me today. I look again like my colleague. I'm grateful to have this opportunity to share sponsored research by the Livestrong Cancer Institute and American Cancer Society. My work is titled A Pilot Study to Inform a Health Equity Approach to Providing Precision Supportive Care for Cancer Survivors in Rural Communities. 
The work that I am looking at, the issue that I am trying to address in communities that are isolated, more isolated, um, in particular rural communities, I am looking at health equity. And according to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, health equity means that everyone has a fair and just opportunity to be as healthy as possible. This requires removing obstacles to health, such as poverty, discrimination, and their consequences, including powerlessness and lack of access to good jobs and fair pay, quality education, housing, safe environments, and healthcare. What we would really like to see is a system in communities, especially communities that are socially isolated, that look like looks like this, right? A nice balance between, in fact, what we would really like to see is a small bubble for social determinants and a small bubble for um, barriers to mental health and an increased large bubble for cancer care utilization. But at best, if we could get it to the point where we are, they're balanced, that would be a start. But instead, in reality, we see more of an inner uh, situation in our community that looks like this, where there's a lot of social drivers of health um, and there's a lot of barriers to accessing mental health services. And because of that, that pulls away from cancer patients and survivors accessing quality care in a timely fashion. And so my project looks at what what would it take, uh, what kind of an intervention is needed in order to move us from the left side of the screen to the right side of the screen. And so I am do I have started a community-based participatory research project, and it's something that I've been working on for the three years that I've been here. I have built partnerships with various coalitions and community groups throughout the rural areas surrounding Travis County, in particular, Bastrop County Cares Coalition and the, Af the Alliance for African-American Health. So when I had the opportunity to apply for these funds to get us started and to be able to look at how we can address the issues surrounding equity, health equity issues within rural communities, these two groups in particular were super excited to get on board. I spent most of the summer meeting with them and talking to them about how we can move forward and what we can do to make an impact, at least with these pilot funds. So the first thing I wanted to just speak with you is what is community-based participatory research? And it's more than just engaging communities. What we have done is we've actually, we the community partners that I'm working with are an intricate part of this process from the very beginning. I've introduced to them what the specific aims are and how should we address the specific aims, and they've had an input on that. They are also very much involved with the where we are going to hold the focus groups, who they're going to be recruiting, who will be participating in a lot of the focus groups and individual interviews that we'll be meeting with. Um, they will be have an intricate part of us being able to report back the findings to the community, as well as designing what the intervention will look like based on the pilot data that we come up with from this initial project. They will also have an, a say in on the following grant that we're, we're planning on writing to the American Cancer Study in the spring. And so the specific aims are pretty much around three different areas. One is we want to define barriers and supports to care for rural cancer survivors in Central Texas. Two, we want to give meaning to the specific social, cultural, and economic needs and preferences of cancer survivors living in rural areas around Central Texas. And three, we want to inform the adoption of an intervention. And in particular, we're looking at designing a training manual, which draws on a collaborative partnership between interprofessional care teams, including rural social workers and community health workers to address identified barriers, needs, and preferences of rural oncology patients and survivors. We are engaging in research, breast cancer survivors, rural social workers, and community and provider stakeholders. 
We're doing individual interviews with breast cancer survivors. They are semi-structured qualitative interviews. They will take place in the community. It's going to be in three different rural areas, Bastrop County, Caldwell County, and Hayes County, which were chosen because they have the highest incidence of breast cancer mortality in and around the, so the rural areas that surround Travis County for breast cancer. We are choosing individuals who identify as female and are over 18 um, and cancer survivors who received a diagnosis of breast cancer within the last five years. For the second part, in, a, in order to engage rural social workers in the study, we're going to be holding focus groups. And we, I had originally proposed to do one focus group in each one of the counties, but when I met with the community partners, they said that Bastrop County is so large and there's so many, in the, and the rural areas are so diverse that it would be important for us to do two focus groups in Bastrop County, one in Caldwell and one in Hayes. We had originally, similar to Dr. Kaufman, we had wanted to do one looking at those who work with Spanish-speaking populations, but due to the timeline of 12 months and really getting our CBPR work off the ground, we really felt like our Spanish-speaking populations deserve more attention. So that will wait until we have more funding in the future to be able to focus on how we engage Spanish-speaking populations and those that work with Spanish-speaking populations. So for this particular study, we're going to just work on work with English-speaking communities and uh, social workers that work within those areas. So the third one is that we're going to be using group model building. And most people who are on this call are aware that, that I do a, pro a methodology called group model building. So I won't get into that today, but if you have questions, you can ask me later. But that's basically engaging community and provider stakeholders in conversation. So we're going to be looking to identify current community assets important to connecting cancer survivors with care, identifying breaks and services we haven't thought about before, share factors of mistrust leading to interruption in care, and share times when care was received due to an increase in trust. So engaging people who are already doing the work in the community in order to also include their voice at the table, because we don't need to reinvent the wheel because there are people that are out there already um, engaging in some of this work. What we hope to do in the future then, once we have this initial pilot data, is to then design a training manual that can be used within an intervention using rural community health workers and in collaboration with rural social workers and interprofessional care teams to address some of the needs and be able to get more rural cancer patients and survivors into care for what they need. And then we hope to disseminate the information to the community and our community partners will help us do that. And also we hope to be able to also do this on a national basis as well and including um, working with scientific journals as well as locally with white papers and, and town hall meetings. So thank you. Thank you so much to Dr. Jones, Dr. Coleman, Dr. Kaufman, and Dr. Noel for sharing your research and expertise. Check your notes. What did you put down to go back and research? If you have questions for us, if we can help you decipher some of the concepts, please email us at livestrongcancerinstitutes at delmed.utexas.edu. For more information about the Livestrong Cancer Institutes, check out our website. We're at delmed.utexas.edu. You can also follow our chair, Dr. Gail Eckhart, on Twitter at sgaileckhart. Eckhart is spelled E-C-K-H-A-R-D-T. This is Kristen Wynn reporting for Cancer Uncovered. Thank you for listening and learning with us.